Hi, I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg, and we're the co-founders of The Skim. Welcome to our podcast, Skimmed from the Couch. On every episode, we invite smart, inspiring, successful women to chat candidly about what it takes to get to the top, and then what it's like when you actually get there. So this is a podcast about the real stuff, the crappy days, the bad advice, the first big career win, and the people who are there for the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. We started the skim from a couch, and we have only one rule on this one, no BS. Join us in welcoming Linnea Roberts to the couch. Linnea has worked in investment banking for decades, from being an auditor to becoming an advisory director at Goldman Sachs. She retired in 2016, and we're totally putting that in air quotes, because soon after, she decided to start her own venture fund called Gingerbread Capital. There's a story there. It focuses on investing in female entrepreneurs and helping women make their marks in the business world. And she's one of the scam's newest investors. Thank you for that. Linnea, welcome to the couch. Thank you. So very excited to do this one because we've been fortunate to, to get to know you through our fundraising process. And there are certain anecdotes that I thought that has really just stuck with me in, in getting to know you. And I want to kind of jump right into one of them, which is you told us the story that you and your husband were looking to invest in something. And your husband went to dinner with a bunch of male friends. And I'm going to let you to finish the story. And you went to dinner with a bunch of female friends. <laughs> and I'd love for you to tell us what happened. Sure. Um, so this is actually a bit of a light bulb or aha moment, as Oprah would say, uh, where um, I had been thinking about making some investments. And we actually had um, made one investment already. And I had the privilege of sitting next to Berta Gonzalez, who started a tequila company called Casa Dragones Tequila. And, I'm very uh, familiar. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope a lot Tea of the skimmers like are. Yeah. <laughs> well, Berta was the first maestra tequilera in Mexico. She, as she often says, she had to grow a mustache to get that job. <laughs> and she's a phenomenal founder and CEO. And uh, it dawned on me, I said, well, do you have any women investors? And she said, well, you know, we have a few. And I said, well, I am going to find you some fabulous women investors. And so I thought this was going to be really easy, great CEO, great company. And so my husband went to dinner with his friends and I went to dinner with my friends. Um, and I started asking my friends and they wanted to know where the data room was for the tequila company. They wanted to know what, if there would be a financial diligence call. All totally fair questions. Uh, but in the same evening, my husband raised um, several multiples of what I was looking to raise in about three and a half minutes. And by the way, they were drinking tequila at the time. And uh, it just dawned on me that as women, and myself included, this is not a criticism, we are hand ringers and we are incredibly analytical. And I was telling someone this morning that it's much easier to ask a woman for a charitable contribution than to ask them for an investment. That's so interesting when you put it that way. Yeah. Um, why do you think that is? Well, I think a couple reasons. And I think one of the reasons is very selfish for me in that I've chosen to invest in women because it makes me feel good. And if the investment goes to zero, I can still feel good about having helped someone. Uh, but I think the other thing is, is that charitable contributions tend not to come with a report card. And as women, we, our currency has been our report cards for a good part of our lives. And, uh, and so our fear of being wrong 
often cause us, causes us to be overly analytical, to look at a lot more. And so I always say, you know, don't let perfect, you know, stop you. Don't let it get in the way of good. How has fear of being wrong affected you in, in your career? Mm. Oh, a lot of ways. Uh, I've gotten better at being wrong. Um, so first of all, yeah, understanding you just are wrong a lot. And I want to preface this. I, it's a huge fear. I'm a fear of mine. I mean, no one likes to be wrong, but like, I really don't like to no, be wrong. No one, no one likes it. But I think, uh, I think as women, we are more fearful of being wrong because again, we were raised being right a lot of the time. And our currency was being that good girl, that rule follower. And, uh, and so being right has always paid off a lot of rewards. So we've been trained. So it's not, it's not an unfair emotion to have that fear. Uh, so early in my career, I find I found that I would stall. I would spin my wheels, and I would work. I would work on something, and I wouldn't want to show it to someone until I knew it was absolutely perfect. And I almost like couldn't like get it done because it was never going to be done. Or I wouldn't even start because I was so overwhelmed by. Mm-hmm trying to get so it right. When I think back to like the places that you've worked, you haven't worked in cushy environments. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you've worked in very hardcore, very male-dominated yep. industries. So how has that, how did you navigate that kind of perfectionist fear of being wrong attitude to actually climb to a very, very senior management position? Yeah. Well, I think fear is uh, both an asset as well. So I think sometimes uh, fear of failure can be a really important driver. And so I think I turned that fear of being wrong into a fear of failing. I felt very, very lucky to have a job on Wall Street. It was not something I was groomed for. I sort of am like the accidental investment banker. And uh, and so when I landed there, I just felt so fortunate to be there. And I didn't want anyone to find out. I didn't know what I was doing. And so I worked really hard and I ran you know, circles around uh, people in terms of trying to know more than uh, what they knew. You j- just had to stay Did a little bit off? ahead. No, no, because they didn't know I was working that extra extra <laughs> mile just to just to keep up. Uh, but I think also that fear of uh, either being wrong or fear of failure also drove me to you know the fake it till you make it. I wasn't going to let anyone see the fact that I really had you know some of these doubts. And I knew I had good substantive skills, uh, but there's a lot you don't know that comes at you. And and then I think the, about six, seven years into my career, it sort of dawned on me that we're in this work, we're in this type of work, we're doing challenging jobs, not because they're easy and not because we're going to be able to do them perfectly. Um, if we wouldn't uh, we wouldn't be compensated the way we would we wouldn't be uh, rewarded the way we are we wouldn't be challenged that way and we're really paid not for getting everything right we're really paid and uh, rewarded for when things go wrong how do you deal with it how has that helped you because I think that's a really interesting way to look at compensation and also mm-hmm. why people in these crazy jobs are crazy enough to do it yeah. right mm-hmm. how has that helped you negotiate? or ask for what you want. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So one is I really had to, I've learned by both watching and doing, and I've been lucky to have many great role models. And, but I got a piece of 
very, very good advice. They said, never assume someone else knows what's best for you. And if you don't ask for it, they might not even know that you want it. They might not even know that you're interested. Uh, so that has been really helpful. I think also I learned very early on to make people comfortable with me. So I was one of very few women in a male-dominated industry. And so right or wrong in this current environment, I felt it was my job to make sure that they were comfortable How with me. How did you me. get them to be comfortable with you? Well, I had three brothers, so I was trained well. <laughs> <laughs> Does that annoy you now, though, that you had to, like, you felt that way? No, because I think I, I looked at it differently, and I still look at it differently. Uh, let's say you have three different clients. They're all going to have very different personalities, and so the way I might behave with a hardcore technology engineering-based CEO and the way I might behave with someone that's a CEO of a consumer products company, I have to morph a little bit in almost every situation of my life. So I understand what you're saying, and I think what you're describing is a lot of what we have to do all the time from going from manager positions to when we fundraise, when we meet with sponsors, or um, really, or we're trying to hire. And I find that the most exhausting part mm -hmm. of our job. Like, yeah. I, we both collapse on the weekends and it's not because we're still up all night it's because I think it's that mental energy of like being on in different capacities yeah. all the time that I find really personally draining how how do you you know for those that are, are listening that are early in their careers yeah. that are like how do I morph into different versions of myself to get ahead how do you how do you tell them to navigate that without burning out yeah well, first of all, I think I think just being a good listener and understanding who it is you're talking to or working with, and and uh, that has always really helped me, like understanding where they're coming from. My husband and I always talk about he one of his frustrations. He's uh, uh, 74 years old, and he said it really annoys him when people don't come in and try and get to know someone. And so he's very he's definitely old school, and I'm uh old school as well that is all about building that relationship and having uh that comfort level and knowing who your audience is and i think good good salespeople, good client people uh, good business people know their audience and i think it's a skill to be able to just tweak your personality a little bit with still saying staying very authentic i'm i've always been linnea i've always been very female very feminine would your um direct reports your mom <laughs> and your uh, your boss, your previous your uh, previous boss, describe you differently or the same? I think they would describe me at the core the same, but differently. So I I was actually surprised when someone the first time I was told that I intimidated someone, that stunned me because I don't consider myself intimidating at all. And sometimes people are just intimidated by seniority. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I think my mother is, you know, she's president of my fan club. So <laughs> she, you know, her description would be way off the charts and completely, um, completely uh, uh, ludicrous. And uh, but I think the people I work with, I will always try to stay really close to my core of who I am as a person with the right values. But even those people that know me well, they've seen me in situations where I'm the listener. They've seen me in a situation where I'm driving the meeting. They've seen me in situations where I'm the lead negotiator. And so being able to play those roles was always a really valued skill. And I don't 
I think as younger women, we shouldn't get caught up in feeling like that's inauthentic because I think you can be your authentic self and still be very effective in dealing with lots of different types of people. I always find it surprising on this podcast and also with our experience too, when people are surprised when someone calls them intimidating because it happens (laughs) with us, right? And I'm like, yeah, I don't get it. Like I just, why would someone be intimidated? But then you think you take a step back. Do you think they meant intimidating? Was it something that has... Well, it bothered me a lot because I I didn't want it to be the bad intimidating. And so one of my fairly consistent career challenges is I was always told I was too nice. I had a fabulous mentor who explained to me that's not what they really mean. Mm -hmm. So I have this saying, which is no one ever tells you the last 10%. So my last 10% was what is really too nice to mean. And it didn't mean that I was too nice. I know I'm a nice person, but it really meant can she get it done? Can she push her teams hard? And uh, and so I worked on that. And what, so when I heard this thing about being intimidated, I'm like, oh, maybe I overcome. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, I think finding that right balance. But do you think it's bad to be intimidating? Uh, not in the right situation. I think I think uh, you want to be respected, and I think you can be intimidating and still be an incredibly nice person. Because like recently, I had an experience where I wanted to talk to someone who was, um, you know, on the more junior side. And I was like, can we talk for a few minutes? I had a very simple mm-hmm. question. It's a totally lovely conversation. I later found out I literally sent them into a panic mode <laughs> because they, I don't know what they thought was going to happen, but they were totally freaked out that I had wanted to talk to them privately. And I at first was like, oh, shoot, I should have, maybe I should have phrased, can we meet in a different way? Or maybe I should have, um, you know, giving them a heads up about what it was about or giving them like a day. I mean, it was such a simple like five minute meeting. It was not an agenda kind of thing. And then I I was sort of wrestling with myself. I was like, well, you know what? If they're like so intimidated, like that's not really my problem. That's not your problem. And and I I, honestly, I'm really torn about that because as a leader of of a growing company, like I culture so paramount, constantly thinking about people's experiences and, and how to make people as comfortable and feel as included as possible in everything we do. But I, I personally really struggle with that. So I'm curious um, when if you are in, in our shoes, like, do you think that that's good or bad that people feel that way? I think people get intimidated by the role. And, uh, you know, I, I, I know a lot of people that are in very senior positions and people just feel, oh, I don't know if I could talk to them. And what I see is the number of people who will talk themselves out of stepping up or talking to someone that they might think is intimidating and they don't even know that uh, because of their role or their seniority. And I will tell you, it's lonely at mm-hmm. the top. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so what, uh, what I hear from a lot of my peers is not how, oh, I'm just getting bombarded with people that want to come meet with me. It's like the number of people who talk themselves out of it. Yeah. Hmm. (laughs) What's your support system like? Like, who do you go to? So my support system has always been definitely my group of girlfriends. I was fortunate when I was at both Lehman Brothers and Goldman. I had other women partners that, uh, and and we all pinky sweared that we would support each other. And it would never, ever be heard that one of us ever said a bad word about each other. And so we just would shut that down. That's amazing. Doing it. And so, and it was actually very conscious. It was mm-hmm. not a subconscious. It was very, very conscious. Uh, 
you know, certainly my mom and my family. I I have a fantastic mom, Ginger of Gingerbread. Oh, we're gonna so, we're gonna talk okay. about it. Yeah. So, <laughs> don't, don't think we're not. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and then my three older brothers, and uh, my my twenty one year old son, who is cheerleader. Uh, my absolutely incredible, amazing husband who literally claps every time I walk out the door and claps every time I come home. And, uh, and so, um, you know, you, you, you build it. For me. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can start it. Maybe, maybe I'll a, follow. It's a figurative clap. Yeah. Okay, Thank just, you. you know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Want to rescue that from Danielle. Uh, so it's, um, so I've, I've always been very lucky. Uh, I will say that I was incredibly benefited by having a female mentor early in my career. What was the best piece of feedback she gave you? So, wow, uh, there were a lot. Um, I I think one of the best things uh, was I remember she would push me into a lot of situations that I felt completely unprepared for. And I remember this one time, sometimes she would just surprise me with it. And she'd be like, you, you did the whole thing. Thing. And I'd be like, what? Okay, I wasn't prepared for that. Uh, but I remember one time I was going to a board meeting on my own, and it was a pretty important board meeting to get a transaction approved. And she said, go in there and win an Academy Award. I love that. And sometimes when you're doing something out of your comfort zone, you don't feel like yourself. Mm-hmm. And I totally believe in 10,000 hours, Malcolm Gladwell's theory. And you do it enough, and then all of a sudden you're like a gifted actor. And so it's a little bit back to what we're talking about mm-hmm. in terms of playing different roles. But I remember looking around the room and saying, okay, Linnea, it's you. Like, you have to bring this home because no one else is here that's going to do it for you. And I've always remembered that. So, Danielle, you know how I've been complaining a lot about the moving process? Yeah, I didn't miss that. <laughs> Well, good news. I know you were really worried. I was very concerned. I could see it on your face. But I found something that made my new place look like less of a shitstorm. What is it? It's called Framebridge. I think I told you about this before, but I don't think you listened. I like it so much, though, I'm going to tell you all about it again. Framebridge makes it super easy and affordable to custom frame your favorite things, from art prints and posters to the photos you have of me on your phone. (laughs) I don't know if all of those need frames, but um, I can use that for some family photos. So how does it work again? Just go to framebridge.com, upload a picture from your computer or directly from your Instagram for them to print, and then you get to choose your frame from a bunch of styles, preview it to see how it looks, and then you just get started. So go to framebridge.com, use the promo code SKIM to save an additional 15% off of your very first order. Let's talk about your balm. Gingerbread. Ginger. So yes. let's also repeat, what is your company called? Okay, so I started a venture fund called Gingerbread Capital, and I fund uh, women founders and co-founders. Hey. Hey. Hi. That's us. How you doing? Found um, a few. So how'd you get the name? So I got the name. My mother, um, her actual name, she'll kill me for saying this, is Dorothy Mae Simpson. And you have to say it like that because she's from Oklahoma. I love her. And, uh, and if you put a couple glasses of wine uh, in her, she'll get that Oklahoma accent <laughs> right back. Uh, but she uh, renamed herself Ginger. And when she was actually told that uh, women don't go to college. So she had a full scholarship to Oklahoma University, and her parents would not let her go. So she basically emancipated herself when she was 18 years old and went to Valparaiso University, which is where I ultimately went to school. 
and she um, spent her junior and senior year there. Uh, her senior year, her parents came to pick her up, and she sat on her steamer trunk, because that's how we traveled then, uh, and decided she was not going back to Oklahoma, and she took a bus to Chicago and moved into the YWCA and started a career there. Uh, and then she started a family, and uh, and then uh, after my parents were divorced, she worked, and, and she got fired. I was in college, and she got fired, and she got $10,000 in severance. And, uh, and by the way, she was a hot mess when she got <laughs> fired. So this was not like one of these graceful exits. And, uh, but she took that $10,000 and started a magazine called Minority Business Entrepreneur, which um, at the time, uh, it, you know, you did not have the same conversations that we have today around diversity. And, uh, and so she, her magazine reached 30,000 minority-owned businesses. And she ran that magazine for close to 30 years and didn't retire until she was 80. She never took any outside capital. So it was sweat equity the entire time, raised four children. Uh, and uh, so she's my hero. So when I thought about naming a fund, uh, my girlfriends and I um, were together at a very boozy dinner, and uh, we could get. Uh, <laughs> uh, we were drinking. We had it all, <laughs> and uh, and actually, my mother Ginger was there, and it was one of my partners at Goldman who said, "You know, you have to name this after your mom, Ginger." She says, "What about gingerbread? Get it?" <laughs> And I'm like, oh, okay. So it's a '70s term, bread. It used to mean money. Yeah, I, I, okay. I like it. I, I like ginger. Yeah, she's a good marketer. Yeah. yeah. So, well, wait. Before I want to just go back to the name for a second because okay. you told me this story, which not everyone has liked the name gingerbread. No. Um, and I would love for you to talk about critical feedback that you've received. <laughs> So when you get feedback, you're supposed to welcome it. So um, I was actually looking to hire an intern. And so I sent uh, I, I, I sent a job description out to a, a business school and uh, and I received many lovely responses and people, you know, the women there really loved what I was doing. But I received one and uh, it, it sort of stunned me because uh, this person was, actually was not interested in the job, but she was um, concerned about the name. And so she started her email with, um, I'm, it, I'm sure it's not my place to say this, but... Always a good uh, way to start an email. <laughs> always a good way to start an email. Uh, but I'm known to be a very bold person, and I'm curious about the name. Well, stop there. I'll answer your question. However, she went on to say that uh, she felt that um, as an entrepreneur, she would not want to have the name Gingerbread on her cap table and that she'd spoken with several people and, uh, and that, they, uh, that she, wanted, she was not interested in the job, but that she wanted to alert me to a potential branding issue. So anyway, so I decided to double down on the name. And it reinforced so it for me. So I love that story because going back to how we started with the dinner that you had with your girlfriends and your husband, mm-hmm. had it with his friends, both of those instances are you following your gut yeah, um, and being annoyed when people are trying <laughs> to be too analytical and yeah. too data-driven and too cautious. And I think I find it especially interesting because you come from such a quantitative background. Yeah. And I'm curious, you know, when we talk about like your your rise through the ranks in the financial world um, and, you know, that you fake it till you make it. But have you always been um, driven by instinct? Like, how did you because when I and I, I'm asking this kind of selfishly, because I think we obviously started this really off of a gut feeling. Yeah. But every day as we scale, as we get 
bigger and the stakes get higher, it's harder and harder to continue to tap into your gut instinct and not be so data-driven. And I'm just very curious how you've managed to stay that way. Yeah. Well, gut and need tend to go along. You know, they go hand in hand. And so those early decisions are a little clearer because sometimes necessity drives your gut. It's like, oh, I need to go do that because I otherwise I'll starve, and uh, and so so I think that it 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 is earlier. I would say I can't look at a lot where I say, oh, I trusted my gut and it really worked out well. I can look at a lot where I didn't trust my mm-hmm. gut and it was just all wrong, and and that usually tends to be around people and character, mm-hmm. and uh, and so. Um, so I would say I've definitely um, had experiences where I've been swayed by, you know, the consensus view and not felt that way. And I've been disappointed in myself when I haven't spoken up. And even if the room is not going to go in your direction. And I mean, this just happened with me yesterday where um, I was uh, a judge, one of 27 judges in a venture challenge. And uh, and there was a lot of disagreement in the room around a particular company, and I felt very strongly that this company was fantastic. And uh, and actually, one of my business school classmates thought it was not. <laughs> and uh, but you know what? We were both very comfortable in hashing it out. And uh, and I was actually even now at the age of fifty six, I was very proud of myself for raising my hand and saying, you know, this is what I think. And this is why I think, and, and someone, someone else in the room came over and thanked me for expressing that view. And so one of the things I've always remembered is sometimes when you say something, you're saying something that 10 other people are mm-hmm, thinking. Yeah. You're just the one that's willing to voice it. And then you'll get all the people that will come to you after the meeting and say, thank you so much for saying that. I'm like, well, where were you? <laughs> <laughs> what was it like to retire? <clears throat> it was very sad. Um, really? Yeah, I, I sort of fired myself from Goldman. Uh, I had a, a fantastic uh, career both at Lehman Brothers and, and Goldman. Uh, I was an advisory director, so I had spent most of my career running a tech banking group. And then in my last three years at Goldman, I ran diversity. Uh, but I was really not able to devote the the time that it would take to really move the needle the way I wanted to do it. And so the good news is I had terrific um, colleagues at Goldman And we were able to have that conversation. And it was a conversation uh, as opposed to uh, a one-sided decision. And so it was, um, but I was sort of surprised at how it felt. Uh, I, um, not from an identity standpoint, but this was my life for 28 years, was going to work every day and never having any time for anything. And all of a sudden it's like, whoosh, you get this whole whoosh of free time and you're like, what am I going to do now? And uh, so I always say I flunked retirement, so it didn't work for me. Uh, I think we also need to come up with another word. Can we have one? Yeah, yeah we can, can make one. That? I think yeah. you guys are so good yeah. at making words. Hmm. Well, maybe one day we'll have enough time to think. I know. <laughs> okay. and like, I, I, like, I, my, I thought assignment. you were joking when yeah. you said you hated it, so I'm like, I still my goal that bad. is to one day be able to think about yeah. what I want to call that pseudo Pseudo retirement. Okay. And then I'll clap for you. <laughs> Out loud. Out loud. Out loud. But one thing I think was interesting going back to the dinner you described is why do you think that it's harder for women to take those risks? Yeah. Because um, I also think about the story about your mom and that's such, I mean, she took a huge risk. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you have to have that 
internal fire um, that's going to cause you to take that risk. And uh, and then I, I, I honestly, I meet with a lot of women founders, and they're just risk takers. And I think we are actually raising better risk takers right now than we did in my generation of being raised. You know, we were the good girls, and uh, and it was just the random few that were that busted out. And now everyone's busting out. So I think that I applaud that. And I but think how do fantastic. you, you know, they're the big stereotype of, of millennials that you read about and you, you see is that people are um, so energized to be risk takers and, and to kind of take charge that they have no patience and are, you know, leaving a job as soon as they feel like it's no longer exciting to me. Or And, and there's, you know, all these stereotypes about, you know, why millennials are so bad. We obviously have a lot of opinions <laughs> why they're not. But uh, I'm curious, like, how do you, when you meet, you know, younger millennials, how do you respond to that um, impatience, if you will? Well, I, I look at it a couple different ways. So one, um, millennials are very passionate. And so one of the biggest things I see, we have a national asset in our millennial generation is that uh, this generation cares a lot about their community and they a lot about giving back to others. And so I'm on the board of Teach for America. So I work with some really awesome millennials. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think you can paint an entire generation with uh, the same brush. We and, agree. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, Teach for America was started by a frustration where Wendy Cobb had a frustration with people painting the Generation X with the same brush mm-hmm. as being entitled. And so I think sometimes young people are always viewed as overly entitled. Uh, and so one is just, you know, withstanding the test of time. I think secondly, being a good role model uh, to people than that, like, look, you can have really strong opinions, you can be ambitious, but pay attention to what you're learning at the same time and, uh, and never forget humility. Like you can be anxious and you can be driven and you can be impatient, but Staying humble and wanting to learn from other people is a really, really important skill, and it's something that you should hone and you know keep working at. Has that ever been hard for you? Because I'm looking at you, and you seem so humble and like very. <laughs> and like I, I mean that as a compliment. Remember it the Academy like, Award? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, humble beginnings helps. Um, I'm married to an incredibly humble man who's very successful, so he's a fantastic role model. Um, I think also doing work with people that are trying to make it, whether um, they're trying to educate in our inner city or they're trying to start their own businesses, I get reminded every day of what it takes. And so I, I just think I was incredibly lucky to have had a mom who believed in an education, um, had the ability to go to school, um, I sort of went to Wall Street on a dare. It's <laughs> and, a good dare. Yeah, you know, no one thought I would last. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so I think um, just never, ever, ever forget, you know, where, where you came from. And What drives you now? Um, I think what drives me now, well, one, continuing to be a good mom. I have a 21-year-old son. And for any young moms out there that think, Oh, it's going to get easier later. It, it it does get easier in different ways, but your response, but the responsibilities become greater. What's the worst piece of advice you've gotten along the way? 
Um, actually, I remember it was almost my very first day at Lehman Brothers. So this was straight out of business school, 1990. I'm standing getting coffee my first day. And someone came up to me and he says, who's your godfather? What? And I said, exactly. <laughs> and I said, huh? And he said, well, you know, I was an analyst here. and I was not a, a, a Wall Street analyst. I was an analyst here. And, you know, you have to have someone who's going to look out for you because they're going to get you promoted and paid. And so you better find a godfather. This was someone in my class. And I'm like, so, oh, my God. I That's so creepy. <laughs> I'm really screwed. And uh, so I just, again, I maybe I just have this defiance streak. I decided that my um, way of approaching my job was to, I, I, I use more the survivor uh, mantra, out, outplay, outlast, outwit. And I knew I could work harder. I knew I could work longer. And I maybe thought I could outwit. Um, and, uh, and so that has always, always worked for me. And I stuck to that for almost 30 years and it's never, never led me astray. So it was that first piece of bad advice that sort of drove my work ethic. I love that. What a good note to end on. I'll play out last out what? Like it's (laughs) done. Good life slogan. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Thank you so much. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra.